I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash, is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. Great children's books open up new worlds for discovery. With Literati Kids, your child can explore uncharted places every month with spellbinding stories handpicked by experts. Literati Kids is a try-before-you-buy subscription book club. Each month, they deliver five vibrantly illustrated children's books, bringing the magic of reading right to your home. Each book bundle is thoughtfully tailored by education experts with stories meant to spark new interests and nurture a healthy curiosity. Head to literati.com slash thresholds for 25% off your first two orders. Select your child's book club and start them on a literary journey like no other. Literati.com slash thresholds is the only place to find 25% off your first two orders of this one-of-a-kind book subscription, the most joyful way to foster a lifelong love of learning. That's literati.com slash thresholds. All of a sudden, I was more interested in communities than isolation uh, to a degree or at least the feeling of community or communion, maybe is a better word. I was, I was more interested in commonality and less interested in distinction between selves and distinction between um, groups and distinction between even, you know, species. Um, I guess I just hadn't thought before that, that a project that I did myself would transform me or would be able to transform me internally. And I'm grateful that it did. Um, I'm grateful that you can sort of change yourself by your, by your work, you know, and by your interest and, um, and by will, I guess. Uh, I really hadn't entertained the thought that that was possible before then. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. 
To keep everyone safe, these interviews were recorded remotely, usually on a cell phone in somebody's home. And so you might hear some sounds and signs of life, like a car backfiring, a dog walking through the room, usually my dog walking through the room. Thank you for your patience with that. Lydia Millet is the author of 13 books, most recently A Children's Bible. A Children's Bible felt eerily on the nose tonally for 2020. It's a novel that's an allegory for the end of the world. A group of families rent a giant lakeside home for a vacation, and in the course of that vacation, there is a great storm, a plague, the collapse of the state, roving groups of men with machine guns, Amazon Prime, the breakdown of society as we understand it. And the novel tells the story of the children of those families who have to figure out how to survive amidst this end of the world because their wealthy parents are too mired in their own hedonism and apathy and self-indulgence to even acknowledge how bad things are getting. This book's anxieties feel familiar. What do we do if we've ruined the world? What room might you have in a world that's falling apart to make small gestures of preservation or kindness or meaning-making? Something else to note about Lydia is that she holds a master's in environmental policy and works full-time for the nonprofit the Center for Biological Diversity. She has, as she said, a day job. And writing books is not her side gig, but it's something that coexists with her work for this nonprofit that's working to combat climate change and preserve the living natural world. And we got to have this really interesting conversation about vulnerability, about giving up cynicism or sarcasm for earnestness and the bravery of saying what you really think and what you feel what you get as a writer and as a person when you make that leap. And I found it to be a really inspiring conversation, and I hope you do too. So what came to my mind was just a particular book that I wrote a long time ago, actually, when I was around 30, so I'm like 52 now. Um, and it was the third book I wrote that would be published. And uh, it was called My Happy Life, and it was just a different book than I had ever written before. And it actually changed me as I wrote it. It kind of oddly insinuated itself into my affect in some way as a human. <laughs> and, uh, and when I finished it, I was different, um, although I'm not sure that was visible, you know, to the naked eye. Um, but I sort of proceeded differently in my life after that. So, so before that, in my 20s, I had written, I had always written sort of cynically uh, to some degree, kind of sarcastic, broad, parodic books. My first two um, were called Omnivores and uh, George Bush, Dark Prince of Love, which referred to the elder Bush president. <laughs> um, and I wrote for humor partly, but also I think in my 20s, I was really working to define myself sort of by what I didn't like more than what I liked in a way. And then I decided to write this book about someone who is locked in a room and writes her life on the walls of her room. And the character is um, sort of an exercise in extreme empathy that is a sort of uh, non-judgmental character who really extends the benefit of the doubt to everyone that she encounters in the world. And this doesn't end well for her. Um, you know, she's a sort of, I guess, Candide or something like that, a sort of uh, maybe Don Quixote type character almost. So there's there's innocence there um, and also the, um, the advantage that is taken of people who are innocent in the story. Anyway, um, I, I sort of changed after writing that character. Um, it's sort of a first person book and by the time I was finished with it, I just had no interest anymore in being harsh for the sake of it or sarcastic for the sake of it. I was interested in trying to love things in the world 
more than in trying to um, define myself by what I didn't approve of. And ever since then, it's not that I don't write ever harshly, uh, of course, and it's not that I don't write for humor anymore, but I always want first uh, to love something in the world and in my work. I wish first to love something. If I can't love it or even like it, you know, then I proceed accordingly. But, but rather than trying to condemn and judge and feel myself to have an identity based on that, I kind of do the opposite. And it was all because I, I loved the experience, I guess, of being inside this made up subjectivity of, of this character who was sort of infinitely generous in her view of other people. Where did that character come from? How did she come to you? That's a good question. I mean, she probably just came to me out of voice as I sat down and sort of wrote the first page, because that's usually how things, things come to me. But I think it seemed to me somewhat overtly that I needed to engage in that experiment for some reason, you know, for some reason or another, for some for some emotional reason of my own. And also, um, and also because, you know, I found it to be in some way, um, a natural, a natural kind of inclination with regard to the world. I think it's actually, uh, at least until a certain moment in most of our lives, it's actually, um, easy to love uh, and trust the people we we meet. I know that like as a teenager for a while I was really like that. Um like when I when I first went to the I guess it was junior high but it became it was the same as high school for me. So the high school I went to this was in Toronto in Canada and the high school I went to was also a junior high and it also had 13 grades. So you were there for a long time and I started taking the subway when I was 12 by myself every day to get to school, which was about 45 minutes away um, on public transit. And I just, you know, I used to talk to everyone on the subway <laughs> before I had a Walkman. Um, <laughs> I used to just, you know, I talked to strangers and I was never afraid of anyone really. And I was interested in people who seemed kind of other to me, um, you know, who might be talking to themselves or, uh, engaged in some kind of alternate reality. I was interested in those people and I wasn't afraid of them. And, and no ill ever came to me on the subway, actually, from, from all those encounters um, for all those years. And at a certain moment, you do become more guarded. Most people become more guarded. But I liked that part of my life where I talked to strangers um, and wasn't afraid of any of them. Maybe I just wanted to go back there. Was the first part of writing this character like encountering a stranger or was she familiar? Um, I would say she was really, yeah, she was really familiar. She was really easy to, uh, to inhabit. Yeah. It was a kind of, it was a kind of easy place to be. Then, you know, sort of thoughts intrude. There are intrusive thoughts that are, that are ungenerous and stuff, <laughs> but, uh, but for time, it's, it's easy to stay, I think, in that space. Um, usually, at least with me, with writing that book, um, it was a kind of self-editing impulse that would kick in occasionally that, that wanted to kind of mock or, um, uh, you know, find, find some other angle on, on her innocence, you know, because you can't help it to a certain degree, but she wasn't a stupid character. She just didn't see, you know, she just had sort of a blind spot um, when it came to, to the intentions of others. And, and actually I'd always written characters with blind spots. And I mean, most of us have them. So most characters have them, but <laughs> I had always been particularly interested in our, in our, um, failures of self-awareness and, 
and blind spots about ourselves uh, specifically, but her blind spots were sort of outward turned. And uh, so maybe in a way she was, she was like the sort of meaner and, uh, you know, crueler characters that I'd written in, in um, the books I'd done before that, uh, in that she was just another sort of blind spot to explore. It's interesting that you describe loving her or come sort of coming to love her or want to to be like her when she in your description and also just based on my understanding of my happy life um which I'm sorry to say I haven't read it that she suffers quite a lot right she suffers and um never really responds to suffering with anger um and so just endures these various torments over the course, you know, over the course of her life. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I think I think also I don't have personally much access to anger. So that part probably wasn't difficult. I mean, I can I can feel very bad about the state of things, but I don't. I don't often experience that kind of the thing that I believe people describe as anger, you know, that sort of that flinty kind of spark of rage. I can get irritated and annoyed, but actual genuine anger, I, I'm not sure I really relate to. So maybe that part of her was also easy. I'm not sure if that answers your question, by the way. <laughs> or is it, did, did it? Or I... I no, but it was interesting. I guess the thing I was trying, <laughs> no, but I liked it. I guess the thing that I was trying to ask was like, you are describing the process of writing this character as moving toward her, be moving toward her qualities. And yet in writing her, in composing her, um, you're you sort of created this exercise in looking at the way that a person with those qualities can be made to hurt. And I guess I'm wondering if that was yeah. deliberate or what that, um, how you thought about that, how you think about that. Yeah. I mean, it, it was of course much of the point of the book to look at how that kind of innocence might function in the world and how it might be turned against you. Um, and of course, finally, none of us wish to be subjected to suffering. And so it wasn't that I, you know, her, her situation wasn't, you know, an aspirational. I never, I never have said that word, I don't think before, but I just said it, it wasn't, uh, you know, uh, some sort of aspirational state or character exactly like her. Certainly what happened to her, you know, wasn't, it was fairly extreme and it wasn't anything I would, I would care to um, have happened to me. But uh, I think I think what I took from making that character um, was just a small part of that kind of more extraordinary or exceptional generosity. You know, just the smallest part, the most maybe realistic part of that. I I after that tried to um, tried to possess in myself. You know, there was never any chance that I was going to become this character because, uh, well, I am far too judgmental. <laughs> and I think I have to be to do most of the kinds of work that I do. Um, and I don't regret being being judgmental. But I think there are many different ways of being judgmental. Some of them are, you know, self-gratifying um, self or... Uh, you know, are sort of, are sort of like, like mean gossip, where the point of the judgment is to elevate yourself above someone else. Um, and then there are other kinds of judgmental, um, judgment, I guess, or judgmentalism or something that, that really are sort of necessary to make moral decisions and ethical decisions and, and aesthetic decisions about, about the world and about whatever you, you do. Um, and I would I would never care to be divested of those. But the kind of more self-elevating judgmentalness that I think that I participated in in my twenties was uh, 
was what I chose to go away from after after writing about or writing from this voice. Really, it's just a voice, you know, more than a character hmm. in a way. Yeah. What, wait, I want to stop there and ask you what how, what you think the distinction between a voice and a character is. So, this is I mean, totally, it's a good question, right? Totally yeah, irrelevant good, to the to the general conversation at hand, but I am curious. Yeah, I mean, almost it might be a matter of point of view to some degree, you know, where where in in this in this instance I was writing so in the first person and um you know I don't know. I've got to, I've got to think about that. So, so basically I almost never really think of myself as, as writing characters. I mean, it's true that I've said it or used that term in conversations or whatever, cause you sort of have to, it's like the parlance, but, um, but I really always write voice and then um, it forms itself into characters because you accrue a certain amount of it and it, starts to take a form, you know, in the narrative on the pages and stuff. And I don't mean that in some sort of mystical way. It, it's not that it's taking a form that I don't control or anything like that. It's just that, um, you know, a series of instances of voice become character maybe. So, so maybe character is, to me anyway, an accumulation of voice or um, the critical mass that instances of voice can add up to to give the impression of, uh, you know, a certain personhood or a subjectivity or, or presence in the in the fiction. Um, but I've I've never been calculated about the way that I uh, make up the, you know, the fake people in my in my books. So I I never <laughs> sit there and say who is this person. I never ask myself that question. Um, I just. I just make a voice and go from there. So for some writers, there might be a much more important and vast distinction between those two things. But I think for me, character is just, yeah, what I've said, which is, you know, um, uh, the sum of the sum of the voice. I wrote the book in a really short time. Um, so maybe two months or something like that. Um, I wrote the first draft of it. And uh, it's not a very long book. It's quite simple in most ways. Um, and I did more than half of that writing up at a place called Blue Mountain Lodge, which is in the in the lower peaks of the Adirondacks um, on a lake uh, of the same name, Blue Mountain Lake. And it's one, it's a writer's colony um, of which I've only ever been to one other one. So it's, it's not a thing that I've done very much in my life to, to go to these um, writer's retreats, but I got to go to that one. And yeah, and I wrote the, you know, most of, most of the first draft of the book there. And it was, and it was in that place that maybe because I was away from my regular life in, in New York at the time and my job, um, maybe it was because it was a tranquil place and you sort of led these lives of ridiculous ease you know, where people <laughs> made your meals for you. And uh, of course, I was not accustomed to that. And so maybe it was just the quietness and the I mean, I'd have to say luxury of being in that in that situation, which I think I was there for, I think I was there at least four weeks, uh, maybe, maybe more. Um, and yeah, and I remember just slowly feeling kind of subsumed by, um, by the feeling of this voice, and the sort of tranquility of it and the sort of um, giving up that's the sort of pleasant, a pleasant sensation of giving up something that I had been holding that had gotten heavy or that had begun to sit wrong with me or make me feel sort of off kilter. It sounds kind of new agey when I say it like that, but it really wasn't. It was just <laughs> this, you know, this, it was kind of, um, 
it was a relief, I guess. It was a relief to to write in that voice and not to, and just to sort of avoid while I was doing it, my common practices of snarkiness and um, irritation and um, criticism, I guess. Of course, you, you have to then recall yourself to criticism and analysis and everything when when you fix a book and, you know, revise it or whatever. But for the time that I wrote it first, that initial time where I, where I wrote the whole book, um, that was the time where I felt sort of free. What were you like after? How did that, what was your after life? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, as I, as I said, I'm, I'm pretty sure it wasn't visible to others immediately or anything but I did just and maybe it was just a also coincidence of developmental psychology or something where I you know I was I was right around 30 and I was kind of leaving one part of my life for another um, maybe Maybe it would have happened without the project of, of this particular book. I don't know. But all of a sudden, I was just tired of, you know, going to parties and standing in the corner with my boyfriend and my my best friend, um, still now today, uh, Jenny Phil, who, who also is a writer. Um, we used to just sort of go to parties in, in Manhattan and Brooklyn and, and kind of hate on everyone there sort of quietly in the corner, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. And, uh, and I really didn't do that afterward. I mean, sure. Not every party is going to be enjoyable and often one does feel alienated. Although I'm so far, we all, we all are so far away from parties these days. It's hard to, it's hard to think anything bad of them right now. It's been so long since we've actually been to one, most of us, but um, you know, it stopped being, an interest of mine to pick people out of a crowd and um, try to find things to nitpick about them, you know, sort of the partial project of, and, you know, mostly this was done for humor when we did it and we weren't obnoxious people, I think um, generally in the eyes of, of others, probably we just were sort of quietly snide and, uh, and it just was, not something I really continued to do after that, unless, you know, I mean, I'd be, I definitely have been sorely pressed to, you know, of course there've been times where I've been snide and, and, uh, critical since then. I mean, it's been 22 years. So, um, <laughs> but it just wasn't, it didn't appeal anymore to try to separate myself that way. And all of a sudden I was more interested in communities than isolation uh, to a degree, or at least the feeling of community or communion, maybe is a better word. I was, I was more interested in commonality and less interested in distinction between selves and distinction between um, groups and distinction between even, you know, species. Um, and this also coincided with actually me moving from Manhattan to Arizona um, that happened just a couple of months after all this, three or four months, I guess. Um, and, and so maybe that was the most visible outer sign of the way that I had changed. Um, I guess I just hadn't thought before that, that a project that I did myself would transform me or would be able to transform me internally. And I'm grateful that it did. Um, I'm grateful that you can sort of change yourself by your, by your work, you know, and by your interest and, um, and by will, I guess. Uh, I really hadn't entertained the thought that that was possible before then. That's exciting. And also maybe a little bit frightening. Has that happened yeah. to you again? <laughs> um, I think that I, I think in smaller ways it has because I continue to try to do different things with my books. I don't know that that kind of social transformation has occurred. I think socially I probably 
um, became sort of fossilized or ossified at least <laughs> like like so many people do. I mean I don't you know I don't I have children now and I, I can't I don't you know even before the pandemic didn't go to many parties and just wasn't I haven't just typically been a partier so much and so like socially I don't even really have a chance to 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 stand in the know. corner and and yeah snicker. no exactly exactly or or even change though because I'm just not in that many social situations. I mean, outside, you know, say book tours or, um, you know, things that I do having to do with books or work or, or my day job. Um, but I don't meet that many new people in, in my, in the narrow confines of my personal life. Um, so, so there's that. So socially, no, but, but I think, yes, in terms of whenever I do something that's harder for me than, than uh, than the thing I did before that, I think I do get something from it. Um, like now, I'm writing a book that's not fiction, which is the first time I've written like a book length thing that isn't fiction, and it's it's hard. And um, and yeah, you do learn learn things. But I'm not sure that I, except for having children itself, which does necessarily changes you. But I'm not sure that I've I've taken on a book project that had as much of an effect on me in terms of my, you know, just um, emotional position with regard to, to, to existing um, as that one did. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. Yeah. Coming at it, I guess, from the other direction, how has, how, how have you noticed this new emotional position filtering into your books? I'm thinking, you know, your most recent book definitely feels like tender and interested in interest. I mean, and also lacerating, but interested in tenderness, interested in communion Mm -hmm. and ways of being together and very, very earnest in that way. Yeah. I, well, so with this book in particular, I was, so, which is a, a children's Bible, I was trying to wed humor to that tenderness you referred to. I wanted to do a book in which both existed, a sort of seriousness of purpose and intent. Um, and also I wanted there to be laughter in it. I mean, in the past, I've I've tended to write books that are either one or the other. They're either toward funny and sort of satirical, um, like one called Mermaids in Paradise, for example, is the most recent example of that. Or they've been sort of more abstract and slightly more idea-centric and um, concerned with um, matters that I care about deeply and that I think are important or whatever my preoccupations, but not really written for laughter. But I don't, I don't like ever to write books that have no humor in them. I don't like to read such books really either. I, I need there to be a certain, you know, a certain propensity for comedy in, in most things I read and, and, and write. But, but I had just sort of separated that out in my books. Um, it had a, it's sort of like I had personal genres um, before and now I'm, you know, like two modes or something like that, kind right. of a more satirical mode and, and a more abstract mode. Um, and and now I'm trying more to have those things come together in, in the books that I do. Although, admittedly, the nonfiction book that I'm writing now is is not not as often funny, but still it has all these it has these passages that are about myself in it, which is where I get, I hope to be slightly, you know, wry and maybe um, someone might occasionally smile at least. <laughs> but then I'm also talking about things like extinction in the book and I, it's, it's a bestiary sort of. So there's a lot of just material about 
the lives of animals and the subjectivity and interiority of other kinds of animals and even plants and trees and stuff. And so that part isn't so funny by nature, as it were. Um, but still, I'm trying to I'm trying to somehow marry um, marry the comic with with the serious. It's sort of my interest is in getting to these things sometimes, especially usually toward the end of my novels that, um, that are really, um, rapturous or kind of ecstatic in some small way. And that depend very much on kind of the, the silence also around the words and, that depend on a very specific way of putting words and sentences together in which, um, you know, in which humor is actually contraindicated. So, so I, I almost <laughs> never at the end of a book, which is why I usually write, you know, a whole book is just to get to the end part, which is this sort of usually for me a moment of kind of ecstasy um, or sublime or something, at least for me as I'm writing it. Um, so I write a whole book to get to that. And that page or that passage is almost never funny or intended to be funny. But I get there along the way, sometimes with with humor, among other things. So, um, yeah, so I guess, so I guess for me, it was typically difficult to reconcile those tendencies within a single book in the past. And I think maybe I'm learning how to do it a bit now, but, but it's just the, it's the particular sort of thing that I do both with humor and without humor that makes it difficult to, to, you know, weave them together. Do you normally have that moment of the sublime, that kind of the thing you're writing toward at the end of the book in mind all the way along? I do have a really vague idea of it, usually of something I'm writing toward, a feeling really that I'm writing toward or, or some referent in the world that I want to evoke in a certain emotional tone or something. Um, it's usually almost all I know about a book when I start writing it, actually. Yeah. So yes. <laughs> yeah. What did you have of a children's Bible from the beginning? Like, did, was it the feeling? Was it the plot point? Was it the prose style you wanted to hit? I think it was just the feeling as it always is the feeling that I wanted to have when I wrote the end of it. Cause for me, that's always a euphoric time. You know, I love writing. I love the act of writing, which is not true of all writers. Um, all, you know, it's not true. There are many excellent, excellent writers who don't actually love writing as much as I do, <laughs> which yeah. is just to say, you know, it's kind of, I know this just because I have friends who tell me this, you know, but um, for some people writing is, 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 you know, torture or it's a, you know, it's a, it's a struggle or whatever. Um, certain aspects of the, the life of writing are, you know, are a struggle uh, for me too, but not the act of writing. And I always love it. You know, I always love doing it. But what I love the most is finishing a book. I love starting a book, but I also even more love finishing it because I can write myself into this sort of state. Um, yeah. Of, of transcendence or something. Um, and I wasn't, raised with religion. I, I, um, you know, I live a kind of secular, secular existence and stuff. So maybe that's the closest I come to, to touching the divine or some version of the divine. Um, the, you know, that which is beyond the human, the ineffable anyway, the unspoken. Mm -hmm. And was that always like that? Or was that something that you gained new or different access to after you decided you wanted to be, I don't know, more. Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a great question. Cause yes, no, I didn't have that before 
before I wrote that third book, um, I was talking about my happy life. So yeah, so that was when that started for me. So another, another very um, helpful question for me personally, because I hadn't even really quite made that connection. Certainly my first two books don't end that way. And I didn't have that experience writing them. And I wouldn't say that, you know, I ha also have um, written two collections of stories and they, they are not that either because they're stories. Um, but with my other novels, I would say almost always I have that now. And I didn't have that um, before my uh, apparent conversion experience or <laughs> whatever, <laughs> whatever you want to characterize um, what we've been describing as. Do you think, I mean, I feel like that begs the question, forgive me, because it's an obvious question. If you think that one then necessarily leads to the other, if a kind of different emotional stance or a stance of openness or a stance of wanting to be in communion with people is what allows you to be a writer who, whose writing produces an experience of the sublime. I think yes. Um, because I, I, no longer have an interest in writing books that don't give me certain forms of euphoria at certain moments. It's not only at the end, by the way, but usually that's where it mostly is for me. But throughout the book, uh, a given book, usually I hope to also approach that feeling in smaller ways. It's just a kind of more it culminates usually at the end. If I, if I pull it off, you know, I mean, and I'm just talking about my own experience writing something. I'm not talking about the reader's experience. I can't, I can't control that. But um, I think that my, the first two books that were published, which I, you know, I wrote when I was really young. So the, my first book, I, I think I was 23 when I wrote it and 26 when it came out or something. And so I was quite a young person and I had written also many other books that never saw the light of day. <laughs> and I think in most of those books, I, um, I kind of had an attitude, a sort of more arrogant attitude, really, um, having to do with just sort of presenting something to the world, something that was a closed system, you know, almost a closed circuit, uh, something that was finished and, hermetically sealed in in some way like it just kind of sealed off and since uh i wrote that third book i it's more that i you know i believe that many of the best books are unfinished in a way and um i mean everything i've ever written has has flaws some really significant in my view <laughs> um but <laughs> i also think that of of many other people's quite good books uh, that, and some flaws are more interesting than others, but essentially I no longer feel when I write a book, like I'm just handing someone a cake or something. You know? yeah. I don't, uh, I feel more like I'm, you know, um, grabbing their arm or um, maybe I'm just laying my head sideways against their head or something. I'm not, I'm not presenting them with something that I think is perfect and um, that they can just take or leave. Now I'm more interested in all the spaces, you know, between the words and I'm more interested in the way that books alone are a conversation between two minds that aren't in a room with each other. I'm interested in the sort of the privacy of the mind in the context of fiction and also that sort of person to person communion, you know, this way that we can actually talk to dead people um, and that the dead can talk to the living through these kinds of words and these kinds of imaginative passages and sentences. I, I'm just more interested in the space between, I guess, um, than I used to be. Oh, I love that. And I love the image you're drawing of like the distinction between a book that feels like a cake, like it's done and it's frosted and you've made it almost unimpeachable. You've made it this like perfect product just to hand to someone and they can like it or not like it as opposed to a book 
that is like laying laying gently against someone um where it's it's a little bit messy and it's bound up in touch and connection and it's not maybe quite so unimpeachable um it's more open right because i think you know the the notion that it is unimpeachable is almost always wrong you know i mean usually when usually if you feel like you've made a perfect thing you're wrong because usually mm -hmm. we don't make perfect things and if you have made a perfect thing it might be the case that that thing is not so hard to make you know so at the same time i don't wish to be overly i like the way you characterized it um at the same time, I do have really kind of strong aesthetic opinions and strong, I guess, um, even normative opinions, you know, uh, moral and ethical opinions, really, really strongly held beliefs. So it's not that I wish my books to be kind of, you know, lily-livered. <laughs> that was right. such an old-fashioned term, like my father used to say that. <laughs> You would also use words like poltroon, you know, but uh, anyway, so, so I don't wish the books to sort of be these shrinking violets. It's that I want to write things that are more porous, um, where there is more, you know, where the other and the reader gets to enter into them more with more openness or something, um, at least than what I sort of intended in, in my, in the books that I wrote when I was really young, which, which just were, you know, pretended to be, um, I don't, it, it's almost like, uh, I don't really know how to say it that well, but it's as though I thought I knew something then, um, that maybe readers didn't know. And as time goes on, I become less sure of that, not more. It's, it really is easier to make a thing that you can see as seamless in a, in a certain way than to have the courage to make something that holes can easily be poked in. Because that seamless thing you're making is, is usually just not as interesting a thing or not as important a thing. You know, I mean, I think it's important to have boldness rather than sort of be conservative in, in your choices when, when you're making art, um, because the safe choices have always already been made and that thing already exists. And so if you're going to try to do something, um, that's not the same, which is always hard, right? It's uh, maybe impossible, uh, arguably, but if you're trying to do a thing, that at least gives you something new that other things you've read haven't given you at least as, as the, as the author or whatever, then I think safety should not be your goal. You know, there's been in American fiction for some time now and, and, and I say American advisedly, but there, but, but it's also elsewhere, but um, there's been this idea that, you can't advocate for things within fiction that fiction like journalism in a way needs to affect a sort of value neutrality, a sort of anti-prescriptive, um, I would say sort of abdication of uh, sort of larger social critique, macro social critique anyway, so that we are kind of trained to be, um, to, to not ever, well, for example, like in writing workshops, they say, show, don't tell, right? And so we're, <laughs> we're sort of trained not to tell in contemporary American literary fiction, and maybe even beyond that, but always to show. But of course, that only gets you so far. And really, the trick is not not to tell, but to establish enough authority in your voice that you can get away with telling. Right. And so, um, and without being didactic or pedantic or, you know, um, uh, annoying or boring or, you know, cause you're not writing a polemic, you're writing fiction, but I think that the, it takes courage and it's very difficult to 
to step away from that sort of, I would say, fake objectivity that we are asked to either embrace or pretend to, takes courage to step away from that into a more um, sort of, uh, what's the word? Into a, do a domain where actually the passion that you may feel about certain things is allowed to rise to the surface of the, of the text, you know? And so it's easy to write books that are kind of, I think quite easy to write books that are pretend objective and um, adopt this posture of seeming coldness um, that has been advocated for in, in literary fiction, this, um, this kind of uninvolvement of the conscience of the author in the production of, of fiction. Um, it's easy to write things like that, and it's safe to write things like that. But I don't really believe in objectivity, and I don't really believe that it needs to be a value of fiction or of any great art, really. I think that the harder thing is to move outside that and see what you can do and see how it lands. Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kistner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kistner. We'll see you next week. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.